Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Chris Halls, who's the co-founder and CEO of Life360, the world's leading platform for keeping loved ones connected and protected outside the home. Life360's mobile app is used by millions of families in over 140 countries. They've raised more than $200 million from the likes of Bessemer Venture Partners, BMW, iVentures, Founders Fund, Kapoor Capital, 500 Startups, and they're publicly listed on the Australia Stock Exchange. In this episode, we talk about what Life360 is, where the idea came from, and how Chris developed it, Chris's lifetime journey in entrepreneurship, the early, early days of customer acquisition for Life360. We talk about fundraising, as well as how Chris has approached building and managing the team, Chris's approach to hard conversations and having to let employees go, the business model and how that has evolved over time, his decision to go public in Australia and why he decided to do this, all of that and so much more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Various Search, a boutique legal recruiting firm that uses a bespoke approach to fill legal department roles from general counsel to paralegal. They have a particular focus on startups and growing tech companies. This focus allows them to provide individualized in-depth attention to both their clients and their searches. They focus solely on placing in-house candidates, which allows them to give their clients a bespoke experience in filling their legal needs. Their matchmaking approach ensures that clients are paired with candidates who not only have great credentials, but who are also a good cultural fit for a growing company. You can learn more about Various Search at VariousSearch.com. That's V-A-R-I-A Search.com. Again, VariousSearch.com. Without further ado, here is Chris Hall's co-founder and CEO of Life360. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, and I'm excited to talk about your journey. It's been a number of years now with, with Life360. 13 years, which is like a, more than a third of my life, which is <laughs> it's wild. I would have ever expected. <laughs> All right, we're going to dive into that, too. For this company, for Life360, what do you guys do in there for people who aren't familiar? Sure. So we are the world's largest uh, mobile app for families. Um, our core features is, uh, I hate describing it this way, but it's an apt one, which is uh, we're like, find my friends, but on steroids with uh, features specifically for the family. <laughs> Uh, so we show you how your family members are driving. We give you alerts when your uh, wife or husband leaves the office, your kids get to school, has a low battery, finishes a drive. And on top of that, we layer what we call our family safety membership, which is a, a whole bunch of features uh, really around just giving parents peace of mind. So we can literally detect if you've been in a car accident and send you an ambulance, just like OnStar, literally sent out over 10,000 ambulances last year. Uh, we do identity theft protection. We have on-call, we call family safety assist. So need to talk to a live nurse because your kid drank the Tylenol or you're in another country, you need medical mm-hmm. care. We cover you. We tell you how your family members are driving. We give you coverage if your phone gets stolen. So, so the idea is kind of like be what AAA was 20 years ago, <laughs> uh, a more modern version, but much bigger than just driving. Um, uh, and if, if you get a little more abstract, our, our ultimate vision is bring families digital and be that digital family brand in the same way that Facebook did it for your friends with a social network and LinkedIn did it for your professional network. We want to be that same thing for families. And uh, uh, lately been doing very well. Um, uh, over 25 million uh, active customers. Um, uh, we, we took the very uh, traditional mobile app track and didn't focus on monetization up front. But <laughs> once we turned it on a few years ago, we went from zero to now over uh, 80 million a year of revenue uh, extremely quickly. That's amazing. I would say there's a lot that goes into getting to that point. And as you mentioned, it's been a third of your life to this point to get there. I love hearing about the early days, especially you look at companies now, you're like, how did they even get to this point? So how did this get started in the first place, Chris? So I had a, a seed of an idea after Hurricane Katrina, which I think was in 2005, and I was still in college. And um, uh, the government was saying, hey, we need to use technology to reconnect families after big disasters. I thought they did a pretty abysmal job. They launched something called ready.gov and the tech they were talking about was literally like downloading PDF forms. You'd write down your emergency contact information, put it in your kid's backpack. And 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 that was the BlackBerry era. But even then it was like, come on, they, the government literally spent billions of dollars on this and that's the best they can do. 
Yeah. So the, the genesis was how about a system which uh, is actually SMS based in the original original incarnation of like, there's a disaster. You can send out a message to your family like I'm safe here or I need help. Here's where I am. Um, and in school, I would put together a business plan around that for class. I had zero plans of making this a company. Uh, I actually didn't want to be an entrepreneur. My my dad was an entrepreneur and never quite hit it big. So family went through a lot of financial ups and downs. And then uh, there's a whole much longer backstory here, but uh, had a cancer scare that, that fortunately worked out fine and had gotten to Harvard for business school. And uh, I had all this downtime and I thought, you know, let me let me dust off this idea that I had. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm, I'm skipping a lot of steps in between there, but Android iPhone had just come out. There were no third party apps, uh, but Google announced Android. And I thought, hmm, what? this is interesting. What if we take this idea and and put on a smartphone that's going to know where you are all the time um, and 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 really make it one of the first apps. So we we built a prototype of the app for what was the then upcoming Android platform is running on an emulator uh, on a computer. There's no phone yet. And um, we very quickly realized hmm, there's, there's something bigger here than emergencies. And it's this family network. And everyone was trying to build social networks for everything. Like it was getting super micro. Like <laughs> yep. Social networks for people who love dogs. And it was like social network for people who love golden retrievers who are under three years old and <laughs> don't fetch the newspaper properly. And, and our thought was like, okay, we so many people were doing that for families as well. But our take was a little different. It's like, well, what if the real thing is not a social network, but it's really like, what are the pain points of families? And if you talk to almost any parent, uh, I have two kids now, but wasn't at the time, um, they say something very similar. Like, my life is stressful. It's chaotic. I constantly worry about the safety of my kids. I just want to get through the day. Uh, so what we realized was that location could be something much bigger than just this emergency use case. But so much of the interaction you have with your family members when you're not with them is like, where are you? How far away are you? When are you getting home? Um, and so the very quickly, probably in the first year of our existence, we had our one and only strategic pivot, which was to this much bigger concept of the family network, but very much focused on communication, coordination, and safety. In those early days too, uh, you know, you mentioned you essentially had had a bad experience early on just in terms of experiencing entrepreneurship from the side of sorts. And I've had uh, some conversations around people being influenced by their parents being entrepreneurs in one way or another, uh, whether yep. it be, you know, had a negative experience, positive experience. What ultimately, though, you know, made you take the leap into entrepreneurship? I don't know you had this idea, but like, what got you to that point? Because for so many people, that's such a challenge, especially if you've seen the negative sides of entrepreneurship. What pushed you over for that? Sure. So, so two things. First, some backstory. I, I, I do wonder if there is some sort of gene for it, um, and I definitely have it if there is one. Because since I was a little <laughs> kid, I was, I was always scheming with little businesses. I'd like. I had the proverbial lemonade stand, and uh, then in, in junior high school, I I mass sold Beanie Babies on AOL classifieds oh, yeah. and struck a deal with a small retailer to give me their excess stock. And then I had a laser pointer business, and I had a satellite TV business in in high school. That was my I guess that was my first like incorporated business, and actually made some real money at that. And uh, so I, so I had the bug, and it's almost like it's just where my mind goes, and. Uh, uh, I can't help it. And if I feel like I'm onto something and I get that idea, in some ways I'm very risk averse, but I just, I can't let go of ideas. And so that's, that's sort of my DNA. Um, the, the journey, which I hit on a little bit earlier was yeah, the family piece. And so my dad, my dad's also very much an entrepreneur. It was, he was doing all sorts of sciencey stuff and you know, bouncing around and it wasn't like, it wasn't traditional tech entrepreneur. Um, uh, my mom was a school teacher. So we were very middle class and, um, uh, so it wasn't like we were uh, homeless or anything close to that, but um, you know, a lot of ups and downs and seeing my dad start companies and you know, not, none of them really hit it big. And uh, there was a period going from like a little kid and we were really comfortable and then having conversations about money in high school and it was just a little tighter. Um, that was, yeah, I did not want that. Yeah. Um, so I did the, probably the polar opposite of entrepreneurship uh, going through college. I was in the military after high school, which maybe formed things a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, but in college, uh, I did finance and uh, I, I got a job at uh, Goldman Sachs in investment banking. Uh, I actually did a summer analyst program after I graduated because I had this crazy idea. I really wanted to go to the South Pole. And I'll, I'll tie this together in a minute. I know this <laughs> sounds random, but it is actually answering your question. Um, 
so uh, I, I did my summer at Goldman. I got hired then to be a dishwasher at the South Pole Research Station. It's the only job I could get because I wasn't a scientist. And then uh, uh, on my physical, which was a week after I finished my summer at Goldman, um, uh, they found a tumor in my neck. And at first it looked really bad. And um, fast forward, I had a few months. It actually turned out all fine. I uh, closer to a false positive diagnosis, which frustrating to be told you you could be facing something really rough for like three months. And then all of a sudden I went to being completely okay. Uh, so I didn't get to go to the South Pole, but I also uh, applied to business school direct from undergrad because uh, I was already in the military. So I was a, a few years older and ended up getting into Harvard. Um, and so the, how, how the stars aligned was I had to, my, my plans for a year got all messed up because of this tumor I had. <laughs> Uh, I ended up getting into business school, and when uh, people think you have cancer, they're extremely nice to you. So I got a deferral from Harvard, uh, and uh, but then I was fine. So I had all this downtime all of a sudden. Uh, I was on deferral from HBS, and I had nothing better to do. It's like, well, I got this idea I did a couple years ago in, in school, um, or a year ago, I guess, at that time. Uh, why don't I give it a go? And then, uh, and then I think that just that fixation happened where it's like, well, I got the idea. I think it has legs and I just didn't quit. And then it made it very easy for me because I had a, a, a very high class backup, which would just be going to HBS for business school, which is uh, certainly worst things in the world can happen. Yeah, uh, not, not terrible, to be honest. No, my <laughs> not downside was extremely low. Um, and HBS actually kept letting me defer for like three, maybe even four years. And eventually said, all right, you need to make a decision. And I said, and at that point, I think we just raised like a series A. So by no means a successful company, but it was, I just felt so convinced I was onto something. And then I, uh, I, I burned the proverbial boats and then, uh, that was it. <laughs> and from that as well, then Chris, in those early days, obviously you've, you mentioned some of the numbers around today. And I love giving people the context early on of where a company stands, but in those early days, how are you acquiring your first customers? What did that look like early on? So we had almost no traction for probably like five or six years. It was just pure stubbornness that we thought eventually the world would um, shift into our favor. So as, maybe as a sidebar, you hear a lot about glorifying pivots and changes. Maybe we got lucky. May, maybe we had great foresight, but we we did the opposite. All the data said that there was no, there, there, there was no business to be had. <laughs> um, uh, but we had a very small group of users who really liked it and, um, it was giving them the value that we thought it would, that everyone soon see. And we also had a strong view that the stigma around location sharing is this creepy thing would go away. And it's still there a little bit, but I don't think people really think too much about location sharing now. Um, cause we, we were literally the first location sharing app period, um, before yeah, find my yeah. friends and any of that. Um, but we just knew that like when we could get people onto the platform fully engrossed in it, with phones that actually wouldn't crash all the time. We launched on the G1, it didn't even work. You couldn't do background location on iOS until iOS 4, I think, which was like 2011 or 12. So we're basically this Android only app for, for years. Um, we, we knew there was a there there. So we do, so the story in terms of how we then first started taking off, it was really a growth hack. Um, and a lot of parents just didn't know that location sharing was a thing. It was almost like magic when they, they heard like your your phone can do that. And it's weird. <laughs> that wasn't that long ago, but it really was something that people did not realize was even possible. But parents were worried about safety. And that was a common thread. The parents are probably worried about that since caveman times. And uh, at the this point in time, there was a big wave of concern around sex offenders. Uh, I think it's when that Elizabeth Smart uh, girl got kidnapped and found or something. I, I'm forgetting the exact details of that news story, but it was like mass media coverage around this. And we thought like, all right, parents are in an uproar about this. Not really the brand we want and the whole political view on that, but I won't get into that one. But I thought <laughs> there's, there's a demand here. So we basically integrated with a sex offender database, threw it on our map, threw that in our in our keywords uh, and basically did app store optimization, which also wasn't a thing at the time um, and got millions, yeah, it's actually millions of downloads for parents trying to find nearby sex offenders. And then we would convert them onto that location app. And that got us a critical mass. And then it all just grew from there. But that, that was the original growth hack that I think it increased downloads by something like 10,000% uh, oh, in um, 
uh, in essentially overnight uh, because people were the insight we had is like whatever people are searching for in Google search on the web, they might be typing the same thing into uh, Google search on Android. Uh, and that proved to be right. And that's kind of was a whole basis of App Store optimization, um, which we were very early on in and uh, uh, just got that keyword traffic. And then eventually people caught up to our use case and the world did evolve in the way that uh, we, we, we either got lucky or prophesized correctly on and uh, <laughs> uh, then it went from there. One thing to go back to on that, I, I want to go through the growth more, but even going back to what you mentioned, not a ton of traffic for five to six years and whatever that may be. How did you keep going through that? I know you said you said you had some users that were still enjoying it. What kept you going through that? Because a lot of times, obviously, you see businesses quit or founders quit or businesses fold because they don't have enough traction or not getting to that hockey stick growth, whatever it may be. What kept you going through that? Um, I think it goes back to that gene thing I was trying to mention. That I, I, I do think it's a little bit in my blood. I'm, I'm probably a little bit like a, a dog with lockjaw. Like I, I'm just stubborn. And I thought there was a there there. And uh, I, I didn't have kids at the time. And so I, a lot of the time I was literally sleeping in a closet and I was paying myself $700 a month. And uh, I had a, a co-founder who was similar life situation. And we just, we just survived. Um, and we'd get drips and drabs of money. And uh uh, we just uh, we just held through, but there, there have been many times uh, that would have been very easy to quit, and we didn't. What were your users at that time? If you remember, like what were they saying about like gave them gave you enough hope as well with with the product itself uh, around that time? Did you see how practical it was, and that the users who did stick would stick forever? So I think actually another topic is getting into metrics. Like retention is so much harder to achieve than acquisition, and so we. We always had a product that if it didn't break because the tech just was bad, like it would retain really well and uh, we would become habitualized into people's lives. And the fact that for this very small number of users, we were so sticky, that was very um, confidence building. And it said we were onto something, um, which is very different than you get a lot of apps or services that figure out a viral loop, but then their attention <laughs> falls off a cliff and that's more flash in the pan. So we were, we were sort of the inverse. And another thing uh, around that as well, with obviously you had customers, you're, you, but you kept going enough, enough to keep going. And obviously you weren't, you didn't want to quit. What was the funding behind the business early on? How did you keep the lights on uh, with that as well? So the very, very, very early days, I borrowed ten thousand dollars from my mom and ten thousand dollars from uh, my uh, grandpa, and uh, that got us going. Um, uh, and then when we built that prototype. Uh, for uh, the, the upcoming Android phone, uh, Google is doing a uh, contest to give away $10 million to developers to promote uh, Android, which is going to be launching the following year. Um, and so we, we ended up winning $300,000 from that. Uh, it was actually a grant, so zero dilution. We were profitable that year, uh, <laughs> which is a problem. Um, uh, and uh, that kept the lights on for a while. Then we... Um, found a very random angel investor happened to be in Australia, uh, a completely random meeting. And now we're public in Australia, all from that early angel connection. Uh, and that kept us going for maybe four years until we could do a real seed round. Actually, no, sorry, it was, uh, we had two years of that and then we did a million dollar seed round. So, so two, two to three years of just like nothing basically. Wow. And, and from that then as well, you hadn't, raise capital for a startup before i mean how did the fundraising side obviously this is years ago at this point because you've raised a lot since but how did that fundraising go for you what was helpful for you it's a different time obviously too yeah very different time i think yc had just gotten started but it was basically unknown um it, it was just tr knocking on lots of doors i wish i had better mentors um uh, I actually got a lot of bad advice from people from, uh, from Goldman Sachs because it was all about financial modeling. So I knew all these people from my summer there. If I wanted to raise $100 million or do an IPO, they could have helped me. But this was like the exact opposite. <laughs> so I was doing all this fancy financial modeling, which in hindsight was a complete and utter waste of time. It was completely conflating outputs versus outcomes. Um, but it was just knocking on doors. Uh, I guess the closest thing I did have to being in the entrepreneurship community is I, I went to Cal, which is... Um, uh, not a bad place to be from in terms of having a good alumni network. 
uh, maybe not as rich as Stanford, but it was you know, a good a good second place on that one. And uh, Berkeley did have an incubator that I was able to get into, but it really wasn't a structured one. They basically gave us uh, free office space, which was in a basement of a hotel <laughs> next to uh, next to the campus. And there was like a you you, you could know it's three o'clock. That's when the hotel baked its bagels because the kitchen was right next door. Um, uh, and there was a business plan competition I entered, uh, which actually, if I do a chain of events, I did get a, uh, I can connect the dots back to a business plan competition. The business plan itself was a complete, complete, almost completely useless exercise. Um, uh, but I, I met a couple of VCs through that and, uh, just started showing up to things. And, uh, uh, it was probably, that then then eventually led to uh, the precursor to 500 startups, which is a small incubator Facebook had, and uh, just slowly worked our way into the ecosystem. And then, uh, and a positive news: if you if you do stick around long enough, the valley is actually very very small, and it went from being impossible to getting VC meetings to now I could probably get a meeting with any VC. Um, just within a couple of phone calls because VCs want to meet good entrepreneurs. And um, uh, I've crossed a threshold where any investor I know would happily introduce me to another investor because even if they don't invest in me, I'm not considered a, a wasted intro given that we've been able to drive pretty good success. So uh, once you break in, it's, it's actually a very small community and very easy to um, uh, get in touch with anybody. Um, but it's a, uh, it's getting through that door, which is a lot tougher. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard that story you know, so many times with different entrepreneurs trying to break in. But to your point, I mean, once you do, it's easier at least to get the meetings. And obviously, there's more on closing them. Funding can always be hard. I, mean, I have to imagine if I would do a seed startup again, I could I could skip all that and probably be one of the entrepreneurs that start with 10 million bucks instead of a million. And uh, <laughs> that's probably what you do get if you've had a successful exit and outcome. Uh, but once you get to the later stages, yeah, it's the network matters a lot less. It, it's just as easy to get the meeting, not necessarily close a deal. Yeah, and that, that's obviously helped you grow from that and fundraising again and again as you've grown. And you mentioned that growth hack early on that really got you millions of users. From that, though, I mean, that's great in many ways, but in other ways that could break your tech, it could cause issues. How did that affect the business? Um. The numbers are still small enough. The servers were fine. Our, our our technical issues are more just like the nascent the nascent operating systems on smartphones, which would just break a lot and for location would kill your battery. They're just very unreliable, and that was part of our early challenge. Is just the the tech was very very unreliable. Um, uh, but we didn't we never crashed the servers per se. With the team itself, and with that growing along the way, what's been helpful for you as you've grown the team going from, you know, a small startup to now a public trade company in Australia? How have you gone about building the team along the way? Anything that's been particularly helpful for you along the way too with that? Most of what I would say would probably just be the more, they'd sound like the quick blog post answers you'd get. And most of them are real. So, I mean, obviously the team is everything. Uh, I think you could probably go to any entrepreneur and they would tell you that. Or any business leader, they'd tell you that. I think maybe add a little more depth and insight into that and talk about how I train up managers now is in the early days or when you're growing, you should probably be spending 50% of your time on improving talent density. And what I'd mean by that is hiring the right people, making sure people in the right roles, transitioning people who aren't performing. And if I'm intellectually honest with how I spent my early days, I bet I was spending sub 10% of the time on that and trying to understand like where, what is your highest leverage activity? Uh, and, and, it, and it's all about people. So in the, in the very, very early days, it's finding that amazing founding team, people who are driven, smart, uh, like balanced in terms of their skill set. Um, and I, I definitely did not spend the right ratio of time there. And as I think, as my career progressed, I think probably until a few years ago, I never actually got that right. Um, and I always say it was always like team, 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 team. <laughs> but then if I look at my days, you know, that isn't exactly what I was doing. So I, when I manage people, especially up and coming leaders or even very seasoned ones, I really hold them to task. Like what percent of your time are you focused on your team? 
because uh, I think there's a uh, I think from Sequoia's uh, it's somehow how to how to be an entrepreneur deck, um, which I think uh, is like entrepreneurship principles. I don't know if it's still floating around, but <laughs> there's an adage that A players hire A players, B players hire C players, and then once you have C players, you're done. And I truly believe that. And uh, as we've gotten bigger, um, you know, how I think about things, it, it, we're about 200 people now, so we're by no means a big company, but I guess relative to people in the early days, it sounds pretty big. But for for C-level hires, they need to be so far ahead of me. Um, I, I, don't, I, I really don't coach them that much. I mean, I'll help integrate them with the team, but if they're not performing, they're out. For VPs, they have to be a subject matter expert more than me. But what I tell every one of our VPs is if you don't have, th- say, three strong lieutenants that could essentially cover for your job, you are failing. Um, and so my number one bar for how I'm evaluating people at the VP level is do they have that those three strong left or right hand men or women there uh, behind them? Um, and it is surprising to me how much, even at the VP level, you, I really need to push on people for that. And it doesn't come naturally. And I think, um, um, it, it's, it's not always the fun part of the job. It's not the easy part of the job. Um, it is almost like pitching VCs where you're out there hustling and talking to people nonstop. Uh, it also means you're, you're transitioning people a lot. Um, uh, and you're always just, it's just a, it's a reality where the person that got you to point A is often not the person that got you to point B. And those are some very painful and hard conversations uh, that you have to have a lot. And this just comes with the territory. So um, uh, that would be my ad- advice on the team side. And so literally like track your days, what percent of your time are you focused on, on talent density? On that note as well, just to dive a little bit deeper on that, having those hard conversations, is there anything that's that's helpful around structuring them, having them, how you look at when to have them, Anything around that, because it's really important, and I would love to hear more just because you have obviously a lot of experience from building a team of 200 people at this point. Um, anything else in those conversations and how to go about that? Um, if you're talking specifically about the letting go someone topic or conversation, um, I think everybody's different. Uh, so for me, I, I guess it maybe had a lot of guilt or something. It's very, very hard for me. I feel like I'm ruining someone's life. And in some ways I kind of am. Um, in some ways I'm not. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I guess I'm not this, this little dramatic, um, but it's clearly never fun to be cut. Yeah. Um, so for me, I have a tactic, which is, I wish I, I, I probably shouldn't need this, but Hey, stick with whatever works. So I have a, a couple very close confidants that are on the C-level group. I, uh, also have my board members and I make sure I'm talking to them a lot about it. And I will, I know when there's a decision, I need to transition someone and I will tell my, my board members and I'll tell my fellow, uh, people in the C-suite, Hey, I'm going to do this. And then I put myself in this position where if I don't do it, I look, I look even worse going to them. So I've basically put myself in a tough position where I have two painful conversations. One's clearly the right one for the business. Uh, uh, but if I don't do it, I look like a very weak leader and I'm going to feel even more awkward around why I didn't do it. So <laughs> it's sort of my personal system for accountability because uh, I those conversations have not gotten easier for me. Uh, but I, I, I just uh, I forced my way through them. Yeah, I mean, it's not I don't think it's easier for anyone. I mean, these people issues, like you said, even if if, if ruining their lives is dramatic, well, in some ways, it's going to change it. And whether that be it's likely a negative in some, some ways, sometimes it's great because it's not a good fit. And they'll find something better for themselves as well, obviously, uh, with that. But yeah, to push on that, though, I think it is easy for some people and sure. it ties into culture. And um, one thing with our culture, uh, which is not necessarily unique, but I, I think we are a group of well-meaning people and we want the best for people um, uh, and we really want to help people. Uh, and so I think for people that have that background and not cutthroat, um, I think that's tough. And there's some good sides about that because even people we have let go feel like we've treated them well. And we've, we've worked with hundreds of people at this point. So we've clearly burned a few bridges just by law of large numbers. But yeah, I think people like, to have that mold, it is hard, but you do get cultures, I think like Uber, where it is more cutthroat. And, uh, I think in the short term, those, those cultures can be extremely successful and high performing because 
it attracts a group of people that they're not going to have a hard time with that and might be a little narcissistic or whatever, but that is a powerful way of doing business. But oftentimes I, I think then they, those, those cultures eventually struggle for other reasons because they're not always good and well-meaning people. So to me, I strive to have something that's a very high performing culture, but keep some humanity behind it. Um, uh, but yeah, I think some people don't necessarily have that problem. Yeah. And then transitioning a bit, you mentioned early on that, you know, getting to 80 million revenue at this point, but that wasn't always the case where you're focusing on revenue and it's kind of evolved in a few years back. What led to the transition then of, of that to really turn on the revenue side of the business? Uh, Practical realities. Um, So in our early days, we very resource limited, like we just wanted to get the user base and that was the long pole. And I think um, backing up a little bit, I think, I think most seasoned entrepreneurs and VCs realize is getting the users is the challenge, not the revenue, especially for, especially for consumer mobile. It's different for like an enterprise play. Um, so we did have investors that supported that, uh, at some point you have to pay the piper. Um, and if you're a company like, you know, Snapchat, Facebook, whatever, you can punt that almost indefinitely because you're growing so quickly. And so we've been pretty darn successful, but we're not, we're not that outlier of outlier of outlier of outlier. So at some point you need to be self-sustaining. So we just got to a point that it was very clear given our growth rates, we're like doubling every year, if not more, which is really good. But again, not not like 10xing every year. But to get to that next stage, it would we would need the proof point around being self-sustaining. Um, so it was more of just that practical reality that it was clear that unless we're going to add zeros to our growth rate, um, we were not at the size where we were going to get one of these ultra aggressive VCs to say, just grow and don't worry about revenue at all costs. So that, that was not, not exactly insightful, just the nature of the, where we were. Uh, one of our jokes had long been though, if anyone in the company is a rich uncle that wants to write a hundred million dollar check, we'll give everything away for free. Uh, so that <laughs> still awful. stands. I think our number is a little bit higher given just how big we are, but, if any, any of your listeners have the rich uncle that wants to write the $200 million check and go for the big swing, the, call me. <laughs> I'll get a few billionaires on the show, then we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk. <laughs> to that point then, turning that on, and I'm understanding you were just at a point where it made sense. You have to kind of go that route. What did that look like from a practical standpoint of the revenue side, what that business model was going to be, knowing you kind of shifted a little bit? Sure. So we have a four-stage approach, and we've been following it pretty closely. So stage one was just put in some paywalls in the free app and we tried our best to put in paywalls that would not reduce engagement. So uh, really only the power users would ever be asked to pay. And that, that was enough to say, all right, look, people pay us. We didn't really add value with the premium product. We actually cut back on value, which was painful, but Hey, it worked. So that was stage one. Stage two was let's actually build a premium product that's incremental and adds value. And that's when we built uh, uh, our first additional premium product, which we call driver protect, which was, uh, essentially everything you get from AAA with roadside assistance, uh, plus reports now your kids driving, plus our our anchor feature, which was our crash detection and emergency response. Which prior to us, you would need a a hardware device in a car like OnStar. So uh, that was very point solution, very kind of transactional. We're at what we would call phase three now, which is now we're trying to build this broader membership, which is more brand oriented than feature oriented. And we're, we're the phase we're at now, which we just rolled out this much broader product in July, so very new was uh, this more holistic membership, which is more selling the value prop of like, hey, you worry about all these things, physical safety, digital safety, driving safety, whatever, Life360 has your back. Um, And so we still have the features you have to sell, but we're trying to build this membership, which is more selling the emotion versus selling a feature. And then our fourth phase, which we're just dabbling in now, which is uh, how do we monetize the data we have and do things like lead gen, things like, hey, we know how you drive, so we can offer you car insurance is very tailored to you. So we have a partnership with Allstate. So it's still in the nascent phases, but that'll be a way that we can now monetize our free user base as well as our our paid user base. So uh, we have a very long arc um, that we're uh, just slowly but surely executing on. And on that note of of executing it, obviously along the way, you've I assume grown a lot as a CEO, as a founder going the last 13 years to a public company. What's been most helpful for you in terms of your own kind of personal growth, personal learning? I'd love to hear more about that. Um, been a lot of things. And some of this is trial by fire, but it's uh, it's the people you surround yourself with. So uh, we have some exceptionally good advisors, board members, mentors, and then uh, people on our team. So um, 
as we've gotten bigger and can hire more specialized people, I learn a ton from them. Um, if I look around my direct reports, I think they're all, they might all be older than me and uh, more experienced in their domain. So I, I learn a lot from the people around the table. Um, I am in a, a CEO group through uh, this organization a lot of people have heard of called Young Presidents Organization. And so I'm in a group with, it's a small chapter. We have about 40 CEOs. Uh, and then I'm in a subgroup with, with I think, seven other people. And so we spend a lot of time together. And uh, Life360 is on the, the smaller side of the businesses involved. So I've, I have a, a mentor group, which is, which is pretty amazing, where it's mainly CEOs that have gotten further than me. Um, and how it works is you, you, you can join at any age, but they kick you out when you're 50. But there's a natural <laughs> evolution where today I'm, and I'm, I'm 37. I joined when I think it was like 31 or 32. So I, I joined was one of, the, one of the youngest guys. I'm still on the younger side. But the idea is that as I follow that arc, I'll eventually be part of the, the more seasoned group and uh, I'll be giving more, whereas I'm more of a, a stage of taking more. What does that look like in terms of how often you're you're meeting? What are some of the things discussed? Obviously, I don't go into details necessarily, but I'd be curious to know more about that. So we in that group, we meet once a month uh, all day, and then there's an annual retreat that's a, a few days long. Um, and a lot of it is uh, not what people would think. It's uh, it's, it's pretty touchy feely. Um, so a lot of a, a lot of it is really more around personal challenges, your own psychology, how you're thinking about things and, and just riffing with people. So it's, it's a lot less tactical business advice. Um, uh, I think there is a, a really big shift people have to make from doer to, to manager and leader, which are, I think that three separate axes doing, managing and leading. They're all, they're all very different. On that note as well, with your own psychology, I had someone else on the show, I want to say as a man, Abuzid from Incredible Health mentioned how that as a founder, like managing your own psychology is everything. And you have this, you have this group that's been helpful for you as well. Uh, yep. Do you take time to reflect or how do you kind of think big picture? What does it look like for you, Chris? I'm pretty uh, um, cerebral naturally. So I spend a lot of time, I'm very diligent about thinking through my decisions with people. I probably overthink it uh, too much, to be honest. Um, uh, but I try to talk a lot about things. And I try to be open. Um, and then I already mentioned my tactic if I have if I have to transition someone. I mean, little things like that about really building up the courage to do these things, which to me, it really hasn't gotten easier. I just have deal with the pain a little bit more, uh, <laughs> having a lot of conversations. I also do have an exec coach. Um, uh, and I'd strongly encourage everyone to get an exec coach as an aside. Uh, I don't know. I didn't bring that one up first. So I, I do have someone I meet with on a weekly basis to talk, talk through some of these, um, decisions. Um, and one thing I've found this is my personal preference, but some exec coaches are not necessarily operators and they're just more just general principles, kind of borderline psychologists. Um, I've had a lot of success with an exec coach, uh, who uh, he, he, he was an operator himself. So it's a combination of personal advice and also business advice. I think that's, that's maybe a little more of a controversial statement where some people want coaches to, to not be operational given they don't really know your business. Uh, I, I'm very much the opposite where I, I, I get a lot of value from having a coach who had been an operator at a bigger scale than me uh, talking through some of those hard challenges and, and very much welcoming um, tactical advice. I appreciate that. And uh, that actually is really helpful because a number of people recently have talked about that who are further along in their business. Typically, it's people who, yeah, they're at like a series A or series B and beyond who have talked about the benefits of having a coach in some capacity. Yep. And one of the ones I talked to, I want to say is Dion uh, Nicholas uh, from Forethought who mentioned getting, or uh, Chris actually, Chris from Wonder School talked about getting an executive coach around culture and really helping yep. improve specifically on one thing he wanted to improve for that year. And then getting a coach around that was one of the most helpful things he's ever done. Yeah. It can just be so useful. Yeah. And I think, uh, make sure you get a good one. I think, uh, it's a field with an extremely low barrier to entry. Um, <laughs> uh, and the good ones are extremely expensive, but I'd say it's one where you, you, you want to pay up and, um, when I've debated people about exec coaches, it's, if I compare what I get from an hour of our lawyer who charges actually more money versus an hour from the exec coach, like what, what's the higher leverage activity? And it's an extremely high leverage activity if you can find a good one. <laughs> Absolutely. And then going back to the, you know, going public side of things again. So yeah, I'm just curious as to how the, the timing played out with that. And then also the decision to go Australian stock exchange. Sure. So we had been around for basically a, 
almost a decade when we started thinking about the process, we knew we wanted to raise another hundred million dollars and we had all the numbers to, we could have done it the traditional VC route. Um, and, uh, we thought being public would be very beneficial for a number of reasons. Um, one is we, we had a lot of old funds and we wanted to get them liquidity. Uh, we had some corporate investors on our board and that caused some problems. Um, and I'd been doing it for so long, even then that I didn't like the idea of just this ever increasing preference stack. And so, um, for, uh, I'm not sure how, uh, how technical, um, uh, the listeners are here, but for people who don't know a preference stack is basically money that gets paid out over time and who gets what money in what order. It's usually debt holders and preferred shareholders and common shareholders with a lot of nuance in between. But, but basically when you raise private money, you are increasing that preference stack, which means before you as a common stockholder get even a penny, uh, all these people get paid out before you. And oftentimes they'll get paid out some multiple of the amount of money you put in. So you hear a lot of horror stories of a company selling for a couple hundred million dollars, which on the face of it is a really good outcome. But then uh, the employees, uh, founders, especially if they're no longer with the company, they get wiped out to zero. Yeah. Um, and that really sucks. Uh, so if you're public, that more or less goes away. You can still have debt. We, we don't have any debt. But um, once you're public, there's one class of shares and your share is the same as every other investor's shares. So it's a it levels the playing field. And so for Life360, we've raised probably a quarter billion dollars at this point. If we were private, that would have meant if we sold for even like $300 million, I wouldn't have gotten anything if it, because they would have all gone to the investors. Right. Um, but now if we were to sell for 300 million, which most people think is an amazing outcome, um, I wouldn't be happy with it given where we are and what we've done, but I would still, uh, I would, I would still get something that would be exceptionally meaningful. Um, and so that is a great benefit of being public. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, there's a lot of detail and nuance I'm skipping out there, but from a founder, I'm, I, I do have a risk averse side, kind of going back to seeing my, my family have the ups and downs and never really hitting it, uh, big. Like I thought that was an amazing de-risk for everybody involved. So we probably could have got a better headline valuation with a private round, but coming with all that baggage. So we um, we wanted to be public. We were at the time too small to do it in the U.S. Um, uh, we would not have uh, been able to pull it off. Now with SPACs and all that, we actually probably could have. But going back <laughs> to years, that wasn't an option. Um, and uh, I had this connection to Australia uh, that was very random through this guy who was an angel investor and then became a pretty well-known VC over there. And the ASX, which is the Australia Stock Exchange, had been making a big push to kind of, for all the reasons I was just mentioning, saying, hey, don't don't raise a private round, come to Australia. It's a big source of capital. Why don't you list here? Um, and so uh, there are a whole number of steps in terms of how we actually ended up pulling the trigger. But, but that was the genesis. And uh, um, we very randomly have these connections and we're a bit of a guinea pig for the process. Uh, and then we listed. And so it's, it's really the same thing as being public in the US, um, just a bit of a smaller market. Um, but we still get US gap audit and all that. So it, it also makes it very easy to come back to a US, US exchange when the when the time is right, which is our, our plan ultimately, uh, once once COVID fades, which has been a bit of a headwind for our business. Yeah. And on that note as well, of just as you raise and along the way, people you know, I haven't really had the chance to talk to many people about this because they're not far enough in their companies typically. But in terms of like secondary market or or you know getting some off the table, so as a founder, obviously you're in a better position. How have you thought through that? So we did small chunks along the way. I mean, it's it's all relative. I mean, the chunks I have taken off and they're very meaningful. And uh, yeah. uh, I, I don't have to worry about a house. I don't have to worry about my kids' college. So uh, I'm not kind of the fu money, but I'm. Uh, <laughs> I don't really worry about a job. If I wanted to not work for many years, it'd be fine. So I've, I was able to get that level of stability along the way. Um, uh, but it's becoming more commonplace, I think, especially for companies that have been around longer. So I've I've done it a few times and slowly built a nest egg outside of the business, although probably 85% of my shares are st have not been sold, yeah. even though we're public. Um, but I think it's very helpful. Um, it's very stressful to worry about money. And uh, to me, it's not, I think a lot of people get overly principled about it. And it's it's just an economic transaction. And uh, if you have a founder say it's important to you um, and you bring that up to an investor, you, you 
this is part of the deal. Um, and uh, a couple times I did get a little bit personal, kind of like, uh, you know, hey, if you're confident, why do you want to take money off? And I'm like, hey, let's, let's get personal. How many companies in your portfolio? Tell me. 50. Yeah. All right. Do you think some are doing better than others? Yeah, of course. Why don't you take all your money and put in that one company? Uh, why not? Why aren't you doing that? Uh, well, diversification, you don't know. Like, okay, so so shut up. Like, <laughs> exactly. That's that's a great point on that. And I do. I've always kind of wondered about that and how founders approach it because, yeah, it can bring a level of stress off of you when there's so much stress, anyways, from running a company. Regardless, uh, on that note of it as well, if you can take some off the table, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't believe in your company. <laughs> Just, you yeah, know. and I probably do things like. I, I have the housekeeper. I have an au pair for my kids. And uh, th those are very big luxuries, but they genuinely do directly translate into me, I think, being more fully engaged in a way that going back to leverage, it's, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think you can go to another extreme because you know, a founder getting liquidity at the seed stage, you kind of like, I don't think that happens very much. It, so it's, it's not like there's any right and wrong. And again, I, I think I think people bring too much emotion into this. It's a, it's a business transaction. If an investor wants to not do it, like, fine, uh, go find another investor. And if you don't have any other options, well, you're going to go back to that investor. And you're not going to do it. And uh, we're all big boys here. Um, uh, so I don't think it's really a moral thing. Um, uh, it, it's like, is it moral for an athlete to make $100 million a year? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sort of removing that from the equation. And it's this is an economic trade between consenting adults uh as long as there's no fraud behind it like yeah maybe you are raising a seed round and you want to take off half your money i, I think some inv investors right to say sorry no i want the money to go to the company but it, again it's a it's a it's a business deal between consenting adults we have also I, I do think founders get maybe overly taken care of there one thing we did do it was i don't know if it's ethical but more on the culture we wanted to build we've we have said any time I've taken money off the table, I've said any employee who's also been at the company more than four years will have that same option. So we've we have been able to give uh, employees liquidity along the way too. Um, smaller numbers than me, kind of more prorated, but I felt pretty good that um, we had employees that it was able they were able to get their down payment on the house from their secondary and life through sixty even before we were public, and that that made me feel good. And I also hope it's. I don't mean it as a kind of a Machiavellian recruiting tool, but more like as a culture we're trying to build. Like, I don't want to be a company where we, we screw over people or, or treat treat other people as second class citizens that are not founders. I mean, clearly I get some perks and I'll, if there is a big payday, I, I get more than anybody else, but um, uh, make it a little less binary. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, I mean, that last point you founded the company. So of course that's going to be how it goes. And and just to kind of wrap things up here, getting to the close, with this company, it's been around, you know, started roughly 13 years ago. We've been running this company and it's come a long way and now public. What fuels you today in the business to continue on? Like, What what about the business continues to fuel you today, Chris? Uh, well, I, I think we're in our early days and I think we have so much more we can do. And I don't think we're stagnant. I think we've scratched the surface of what we can do. Um, uh, it is my baby to a large degree. I'm way, way past the ramen stage, so I, I get paid. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, not the big company CEO by any means, but I'm, I'm not sacrificing day to day. Uh, so it's, it's not like the early days. I need to kind of really uh, struggle to survive. So it's, it's very different. I'd say, uh, yeah. very. I maybe this is semi off topic, but I've gotten a really big second win from COVID of all things, where I, I didn't realize how much the commute into the city was grinding on me and wearing on me. Um, and I'm really thriving working from home as I know a lot of other people are. And so that's given me a new wave where it's like, hmm, I, as if I, I don't really get to control my own schedule per se in the sense that uh, I, I basically am jam packed with like 10 hours of stuff a day that just shows up in my schedule. But I do have a level of autonomy where you know, I can work remote and I can do it anywhere. And, uh, I'm not going to the city every day, which is amazing for my mental health. So uh, uh, that's given me uh, a, a very good, not second win, probably like 10th win to this point. So <laughs> hopefully that uh, hopefully that continues. Absolutely. And on uh, kind of a similar note of that as well, with you when running this business and having all these meetings and things that come in you know, your, your time every day, how do you recharge? Um, it's a good question. Uh, and then I have two little kids, so uh, yeah, I, I, uh, 
I can see why people have midlife crises now. Um, <laughs> it's very hard to recharge. Um, uh, so instead of answering your question, I, I heard, I don't know if it's a proverb or saying or whatever, but it's, uh, you have work, uh, family and self. Uh, one is easy, two is hard, three is impossible. So, so pick two. Um, so there probably is some element of, um, uh, you kind of just have to, uh, if you're running a company and you have little kids, you just need to suck it up a little bit. And not to say I don't have time to recharge. I try to make sure I get breaks and, uh, take vacations, but, but it's tough. Uh, on that note of you know, vacations are one thing, uh, on a week to week, you know, day to day basis, even is there anything in particular that kind of helps you make sure you can kind of stay at your best? Uh, well, going back to that COVID thing, I have a, I have a couple acres way out in the country now, and a huge part of the CEO job is uh, just listening to people and not really having to speak much. So uh, my, uh, maybe my, I guess it's not so secret, but like uh, uh, a lot of my time now is I'm on my phone on Zoom calls. Uh, I don't do video for internal calls because it just wears me out. And I'm just walking around working in my garden at the same time doing things that are purely manual with my hands that do not detract from my effectiveness whatsoever. And that's been pretty cool because it used to be calls. I'd be sitting at my desk in the city. Now I'm walking around, I'm getting exercise. I'm in the fresh air. I got a nice view and uh, that has been amazing. So it makes my days uh, so much less monotonous and uh, I don't feel like I'm stuck in the uh, proverbial <laughs> cubicle all day. Yeah. Much different scenario there as well. And Chris, where can people go to learn more about Life360 connect with you as well? Uh, sure. So uh, life360.com is our website. It's very functional. Our app is just Life360 in the app stores. Um, learning more about me, I, I honestly don't. I'm pretty uh, I'm, I'm pretty quiet, um, but I'm around. I, I, I have the Twitter handle, Chris Hulls, but I don't talk too much about business. Uh, I am on TikTok randomly, which is more to uh, change our reputation with teens, which uh, if you want to see some very amusing videos of things, including me getting executed by a squad of 12-year-olds getting their uh, their hatred out on me, uh, you can go and get a laugh there. I love it. People, check it out. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you. Take care. Today's episode is brought to you by Various Search, a boutique legal recruiting firm that uses a bespoke approach to fill legal department roles from general counsel to paralegal. They have a particular focus on startups and growing tech companies. This focus allows them to provide individualized in-depth attention to both their clients and their searches. They focus solely on placing in-house candidates, which allows them to give their clients a bespoke experience in filling their legal needs. Their matchmaking approach ensures that clients are paired with candidates who not only have great credentials, but who are also a good cultural fit for a growing company. You can learn more about Various Search at VariousSearch.com. That's V-A-R-I-A Search.com. Again, VariousSearch.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.